Lord, thank you for the simple picture that's before us this morning that reminds us of what it is that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask that at, as we walk through our service together, that Father, his finished work on the cross would be the theme of all of our songs, all of our responses. And Father, that you would get the glory. For in Jesus' good name I pray, amen. Amen. If you would take your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I think it's good for us to kind of set a platform of where we, we, we hope to launch from and actually where we will land as well at the end of our time together uh, this morning. Um, Romans chapter 11, I think, helps us uh, get prepared to answer some of these questions. It says this, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen. Figured I would start with a very simple hymn of praise that Paul records there in the book of Romans because what we're doing for the rest of the morning ain't so simple. Uh, so as you can see with the questions in front of you this morning, our task, the last task of this glorious series that I will forever bear the scars from, the last question of our series is this, what does the Bible say about free will or predestination? Does God really choose some people for heaven and some for hell. If God knows everything, do we as Christians have free will? So, three very simple questions. Um, uh, what, what I'm going to do this morning is, is tell you at the onset, this is going to be a gross oversimplification and overgeneralization in order to answer these questions. Uh, there are so many different avenues that we could go down, and they wouldn't even be rabbit trails in order to answer these questions, because th these questions really lead us to a place uh, in theology that we'll talk about in a few minutes, and, and I will. I'll, I'll nerd out for a couple minutes with you. Um, I'll also try to keep it simple and, and general as well. Um, but I, I want to, uh, here's a crazy thing, I want to start with the first question first. What does the Bible say about free will, or predestination. Well, let's uh, look at a few verses I'll throw up here in front of you, and let me be clear, this is not all of them. Uh, this is certainly not even a broad uh, scope of them. This is a very few of them, but I think this will give us a, uh, an understanding, at least of the basic concept in Scripture of these two topics. The first one, free will. What does the Bible say about free will? says this in John 3.16, God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The inference there is that mankind has the opportunity to believe in Jesus, so that inference is regarding free will. John chapter 5 verse 40, but if you are not willing to come to me 
Sorry, let me try that again. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. So, so Jesus is speaking to those who are rejecting him, an exercise of their free will. Luke chapter 7, verse 30, but since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. Another exercise of free will, rejecting the very plan of God for their lives. Acts 7.51, we need to bring this insult back. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. We can leave that part off. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you do also. Again, another picture of people who are exercising their free will, and in this case, in an effort to reject what it is that the Holy Spirit's trying to do in their lives. So what does the Bible say about free will? It is a truth. It, it, it is an actuality. It exists. What does the Bible say about predestination? Well, John 6, says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The inability for humans uh, to, to approach God without God's drawing of them is a picture of his activity in their salvation. John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit so that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask in my, the Father in my name, he will give to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you, Jesus says, talking about the divine election, the predestination of people to be called by Jesus. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Again, another picture of, in Scripture, it says there are some who are appointed to eternal life. We continue in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. The idea of being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So we see that predestination uh, and Free will both exist in Scripture. Two very different ideas that kind of go this way, God chose you or you chose God. So how do you reconcile God's election, his predestination, with the responsibility or the free will of man? How do you, how do you get those two concepts that are evidently true in Scripture and laid out throughout Scripture and interwoven through Scripture, how do you get those two concepts to reconcile and, and people have tried a number of things throughout the years. You either uh, believe in the election of God and you reject free will, or you believe in free will and reject the election of God, or you do what children do with their plates when they don't want to eat what they're eating and they take all of it and mash it all together. And that seems to make sense. And, and, and the actuality is, no, that's the wrong answer. The election of God, the predestination, the free will of man, they go together. They're friends. Now, none of us would look at those two things and be like, now that's a couple that makes sense. I mean, we all know couples like that, right? You've all seen married couples like, how in the world is he married to her? You have met our youth pastor, have you not? <laughs> that's exactly the right response. No, we, we, they're not, well, okay, maybe they are. The reality is you, you have that moment, it's like, but how, how does that fit together? I don't understand. And, and the reality is we don't have to reconcile election and free will because they're, they're friends. 
You have to believe both things in their entirety. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a famous pastor uh, back many, many years now, made the comment, he said, if, if I read scripture and I see that scripture clearly says election here, and if it's in scripture, it's true. And if I read another place in scripture, it says man is responsible for all his actions. Well, that's true too. So, so it's only my own foolishness that leads me to think that those two truths actually contradict each other because they're both true in Scripture. And what we have to remember is this. Every single one of us, I, I, don't, I mean, we all have a, a, a wide variety of academic backgrounds, but every single one of us in this room is trying to comprehend with our itty-bitty brain, right, that the, the God that is majestic and holy and infinite and eternal and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. And we can't get God to fit in here. There is no book that can contain everything that there is to contain about God. It's like you and I going to a yard sale this weekend and picking up a $5 telescope. Right? And walking into our backyard and setting that bad boy up and be like, I'm going to see like all the mountains on the moon and, well, the moon's bigger, but it's no clearer because it's a $5 telescope. That $5 telescope, folks, is our theological tradition at times. It's a theology that we try to approach God with. And God is that vast universe that we're trying to take in with the $5 telescope. Now, I know. Some of you are sitting here like, hey, my telescope's $10. Okay, fine. <laughs> The Hubble was $2.1 billion. It still hasn't touched the edges yet. So I don't care how big your telescope is. Our God is massive. And to think you are going to be able to drink him completely in is foolishness. Now, it is vital that I say this. I am not saying to study this topic is a waste of time. I'm not saying the study of theology is foolishness. I'm not saying we shouldn't spend time trying to wrap our heads around a theology that is deep, that is heavy, that is heady, that's even overwhelming, because we should. That's how we love the Lord with our minds. Every single person in this room should be diving into the deepest of waters to try to comprehend this God who knows them. You should know him. So, so in my history of ministry, Bible college, seminary, and then the first church that I worked at for about 10 years after seminary had a seminary, so I was co-workers with seminary professors, okay? And so that would be the first, man, that's, that's, probably, the, the, that's probably a 20-plus year period of time that I was constantly surrounded by these really smart people. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. I know this may surprise you. I really don't enjoy sitting down for hours and talking about concepts that have no, no anchor in reality. And, and now, there was times I'd be in staff meetings with some seminary profs, and they would be talking, and it's like, oh, who cares? Can we do the baptism outside this week or not? And, and, and so, but they would keep going. And, and actually, I had a very good friend of mine who was a seminary professor. And if you, if you think of a seminary professor in your mind, like close your eyes and be like, what does a seminary professor look like? That is what this seminary guy looked like. Dr. Al Huss, um, a good, very good friend, walked into my office one day and said, hey, Taylor, can I have a conversation real quick? Sure. I know exactly. It's funny. I can picture exactly in my office where I was sitting, which chair he sat in in my office. And he sat down and he just went... 
And the gist of the conversation was, I, I'm concerned, Frank, that you are disrespecting the grandness of our God by discounting those conversations. And I said, I think you are going to be a good friend. And the conversation continued, and he was right. The reality was that I, it really was more of a product of me not loving God with my mind. I wanted to love him with my soul, my heart, my might, my energy, my enthusiasm, my mouth. But in those moments, I wasn't trying to love him with my mind. So, so do not hear that I don't think we should dive deep into theology. We absolutely should. We must dive deep into theology. I just have to give you a crazy oversimplification and overgeneralization of a few things in order to serve you well and to answer these questions this morning. Okay, so, so here, here goes, <laughs> and actually, uh, Doc Huss wouldn't have a problem with it. There's a couple other professors that I've had in my history that are probably going to clutch their chest when they see what I'm about to do. There are two schools of thought in theology that kind of flow out of a discussion about these types of things when it comes to predestination and free will. There's a number of other schools of thought, but there's two main schools of thought, and I do not want to spend a long time on this. So if you're like, oh, just bear with me for five minutes, I'm about to do what I spent like $30,000 on in five minutes, so there's money at use, well, well used right there. What I want to do is kind of walk through and give you the picture of what Calvinism is, very generally and oversimplified, and what Arminianism is, very general and very oversimplified, okay? Um, I have to remember which side I point to, because I'm just going to keep doing this to tell you which camp I'm in at that moment, all right? So we'll do, we'll do Calvinism over here. I'm going to pull this up just in case I get lost. So, so Calvinism over here, okay? Calvinism is that, that theological train of thought that has a key word, predestination. Just, just for, the, for our top, and not, maybe not for everything, but for our conversation today, predestination is the key word, okay? Now, now in history, Calvinists would have been the Puritans, uh, Charles Spurgeon, J.I. Packer, great theologian, and today, m many pastors, one particular, John MacArthur, okay? Those are the, the Calvinist, that's team Calvinist, go team Calvinist, okay? Uh, churches, you'd have some uh, Presbyterians, some Reformed churches, and many Baptist churches actually fall into the, the Calvinist camp. The Arminian camp. Okay. Arminian would have a, the key phrase, instead of a word, would be free will. Free will. Okay. Historically speaking, if you look at the Arminian camp, you'd have John and Charles Wesley. Uh, you would have Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, um, Rick Warren, pastor out west, and he would fall into this Arminian camp. Um, so that's, that's Team Arminian. We're going to have a softball game afterwards. Um, when you look at the type of churches that fall into this, you got Wesleyan churches, Pentecostal churches, and surprisingly enough, many Baptist churches, which is funny because aren't some of them over here? Yes, Baptists can't make up their mind. That's just one of the, the I'm a recovering Baptist, that's where I'm at. So, all right, now, now, now as you look at these things, what, what ends up happening is that the, um, Calvinism was an early system of thought um, that John Calvin uh, really kind of it, it made popular. Uh, to a degree in the way that he spelled out his theology, and it was more accepted uh, in that time period. Uh, you're talking, that time period would be the, the late 1500s, early 1600s, okay? Arminianism came about as a result of a fellow named Jacob, Jacobus Arminius, which sounds like I'm making a joke, but it's really his name, Jacobus Arminius. And, and really what he did 
uh, <laughs> I can never say this word right. I even practiced. I had Murray help me with it. I still can't. Remonstrance. The remonstrance. I got it. So the remonstrance were these things that the Arminians actually sat down and said, okay, we disagree with the theology of the Calvinists. And so let me, let me write down what we actually we believe about these areas. Then you fast forward about 10 years, um, and you get to this awesome thing called the Synod of Dort, um, where they got together and actually the Calvinist camp responded to those remonstrance that the Arminians had brought, okay? Anybody feel like you're in the weeds yet? All right, I'm with you. I'm going to really simplify this now. You ready? Um, Calvinism is known for, and this is accurate, it's best known as being the, the system of theology that explains the, the process of salvation through a process called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. That's how you remember their points, TULIP. And so what I want to do is tell you what TULIP stands for, what the Calvinists believe about those points, and then what the Arminian uh, counterpoint would be to those points, okay? So, seriously, five points, two minutes, people's heads exploding. It's going to be awesome, so bear with me, okay? So here you go. So you start here, and, and then the very first point in TULIP is total depravity. Total depravity. The idea that we are fully corrupt. After the fall, we are fully corrupt, and we will always choose sin. We can't choose good. We can't choose God. We are totally depraved. On our own, we will always choose sin. In the Arminian camp, they would say total depravity. They would agree with that. It would render people spiritually dead and unable to do anything of value in God's eyes. They they, they would also say, however, God has given to each and every one of us something called prevenient grace. And prevenient grace is a grace that allows each and every one of us, although we're totally depraved, the opportunity to choose Jesus. So that's the, the difference between the two. So that's total depravity. Now, Calvinists would go to the U, which would be unconditional election. That means God chooses people to be saved. That's it. He chooses people to be saved. It's for his good pleasure. Unconditional election. The, the Arminian counterpoint to that would be election was conditional based on God foreknowing and foreseeing those people who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because of that provenient grace. So they say, actually, foreknowledge is just because God exists outside of time and he knew who was going to choose Jesus. And so those are his elect. All right, so now, L, limited atonement. So the Calvinists would teach that uh, Jesus' death was for the elect and for the elect only. If he died for the elect and the elect didn't believe, then Jesus' death was a failure. That's limited atonement. Arminianism would say Christ's atonement was unlimited in this way. It's sufficient for the entire world, the sin of the entire world, but it's efficient only for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ for the elect. <laughs> Hang on, there's only two more. I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is the grace that is given to the elect by God. The Calvinists would teach that it's the grace that's given to the elect by God, that they, the, the, the drawing um, of God in John 6, 44, where the Father draws them. And, and if God calls you in this grace, you can't say no. The Arminian response to that would be, there is resistible grace, 
giving each sinner the opportunity to exercise free will in either choosing or rejecting Jesus. And finally, the P is perseverance of the saints. They believe that because God, Calvinists believe that because God is the author and the finisher of our faith, we can't fall away. They would say, if you are born again, you can't be unborn. Arminians would teach the, the possibility of apostasy because there's free will involved in salvation where man can choose salvation. That means they can also choose to be out of God's kingdom at a later time. And so, so what you have is for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years, these theological camps just trying to nuke each other over these points. And, and, and I think one of the things that I want to say at the onset is this. Uh, yes, they are, are very different and they are opposing to each other, but these are not issues that should cause us to call somebody in the other camp a heretic, I think many times we don't do our homework and understand the strengths of a different theological argument, and we certainly don't spend the time to understand the weaknesses of our own. And so what that causes us to do is to become so tribal in our approach to other people that we divide over things we should never be dividing over. So for our purposes today, I'm going to way oversimplify, and I'm going to define Arminianism like this. You ready? The main argument is that although we are very lost, we have been given provenient grace, which gives us an opportunity to choose to believe in Jesus for salvation. So Arminianism is, as lost as we are, we've all been given an opportunity to choose to believe in Jesus for salvation. Here's a picture for you. The Arminian's on his road to hell. God reaches down with one hand, and the Arminian reaches up with one hand. God grasps him by the one hand and he pulls him off the road to hell into his presence. Okay, that's Arminianism. Calvinism, for Calvinists, we are utterly and totally lost, unable to make a choice to follow God, and those people who God elects are drawn by a grace that cannot be resisted. So that same picture, Calvinist on his way to hell, God reaches down with both hands and swoops him up and brings him into his presence. So, I am going to admit at the onset that there are seminary professors who would revoke my degrees based on that oversimplification and overgeneralization. But for our purpose today, which is to answer these questions, I just want to make sure that we, we, we picture this carefully and don't make it too complicated. I already meddled in the weeds a little bit for you. So, so now, here we go. Next question then. Based on that understanding of both Arminianism and Calvinism, the question is this, does God really then choose some people for heaven and some people for hell? It's one of the accusations that many, not all, again, not every Arminian believes this, not every Calvinist believes all of these, I mean, there's a mixed match, but many a time, uh, many Arminians will make the accusation against a Calvinist believer that what you are saying is, first, that God is the author of sin, and you're also saying that God has chosen some people for hell. Um, you need to hear this. God will never send anybody to hell who doesn't deserve it. Man is held responsible for his sins, not because he's not elect, because he's a sinner and he hasn't chosen 
to have his sins washed in the blood of the Lamb. God is not cold. He's not unloving. He's not deterministic. He's not cruel. I mean, God, God says he loves humanity, doesn't he? God says he, he loves all of humanity, and you see it pictured in his universal love for humanity. Which, and there's a number of ways that that's seen. That's seen in the common grace that he shows to people. Common grace is that you and I get to enjoy the same things, whether or not we're sinner or holy. It doesn't matter. We get to enjoy sunlight. We get to enjoy sunsets. We get to enjoy the starry sky. We get to enjoy mint chocolate chip ice cream. We get to enjoy uh, relationships. We get to enjoy the Redskins. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. <laughs> but we get to enjoy this. That's common grace. But the greatest picture of God's common grace to us is his universal call to the gospel. You think about Matthew chapter 23. And you see the compassion that God has for people. People who reject him. Matthew chapter 23 verse 37 says this, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. She weren't willing. I mean, think, think about that. God, Jesus, the Son of God, is standing there looking at these people and saying, I wanted to embrace you, but you never allowed me to embrace you. And he's talking about the sinner's unwillingness. He's talking about the, the raw, raw rebellion and resistance to the love of God that is characteristic of a sinner. And, and what you hear in the voice of Jesus in this passage is the sorrow over their rejection of him. He said, Ezekiel 33, God says, listen, I, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, God actually asks the question, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? And he answers his own question, no, I take pleasure when they repent. So you can't turn God into some cold, unfeeling entity, deterministic without compassion, because that's not the case. So when you, you pull all this together, and Jesus says, man, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to draw you in, I wanted to embrace you, but you, you wouldn't let me. It points to the fact that the sinner has to be willing to respond. And when they don't, it's a grief to the heart of God. It also points to the fact that somehow those two things, the election of God and the free will of man, in our eyes, although they may be incompatible, they're perfectly aligned in the mind of God. And if that's the case, then, if that's the case, then do we actually have free will? <laughs> yes, we do. Is it true that, that, that God is sovereign? Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God, no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning. And from long ago, what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place, I will do all my will. You will not thwart the plans of God. He's God. So is he sovereign? Absolutely. Is man responsible with his free will choices? Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. What a man sows, that shall he also reap. Our choices are our choices. We have a will. And so if we're going to be faithful to the testimony of Scripture, we have to find a way to acknowledge that both sides of the coin exist and are true and are right. And we need to admit that that is a tall order. And so our response should be one of humble worship. 
humble worship. I mean, listen to Paul again in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. In other words, he's saying, you start talking about the wisdom and knowledge of God and you end up in water that is too deep to swim in. How unsearchable his judgment and untraceable his ways. At some point in every discussion when it comes to God, because he is the God of the universe and we have our little trinket $5 telescope, at every point in the discussion, at some point, you've got to get to the place where you're like, look, I can't find out. Because his ways are unsearchable. His ways are untraceable. It doesn't end there, does it? For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so what ends up happening is as big as he is and you have this understanding that's so finite and tiny and you're trying to fit it and and make everything come together and the puzzle pieces to all just flow so perfectly. As big as God is, you have to stop and worship his transcendence. You end up worshiping his unsearchable nature. And that's the truest form of worship. The truest form of worship is when we offer our allegiance and submission and obedience to him, even when we can't make sense of it all. That's, that's, that's the case with Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22, right? Abraham and his wife Sarah waited for years to have that little boy. Years just waiting and waiting and waiting for God to come through in his promise. Finally, that little boy is born, and they name him Laughter, because Sarah cracked up thinking she was going to have a baby when she was almost 100 years old. Laughter. And one morning, God comes to Abram and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, to the top of that mountain, and I want you to offer him to me. It says early the next morning, Abraham and Isaac got their stuff together with the servants and they headed towards the mountain. They gathered the things they would need for the altar and as they drew close enough where they could see it, Abraham stops and he looks at his servants and it is this amazing statement that is made. He says, you stay here. The boy and I are going to continue and we're going to go worship. Worship? How is that worship? I mean, worship is when I get to come into this place and raise my hands and sing songs that I like and sway a little bit and feel really good. I mean, worship makes me feel good. What was Abraham getting out of that? What was his worship going to bring him? A dead son. He didn't understand, but he knew God called him to it. So he marched up the mountain, sun in tow, built the altar, placed Isaac upon it, raised the knife to the neck of his son, his only son Isaac, who he loved. Just before he offered his own son, God called out to him, Abraham, Abraham, stop! Now I know you fear me and you'll hold nothing back. 
What's true worship? Worship is in the truest of nature is to offer our allegiance, our submission, and our obedience to God even when we don't understand. The person that you need to beware of is the person who comes to you and says, I figured this out. Because that means they fit God in their mind. And if any God fits in your mind, no offense, that's not the God I want. See, we need to celebrate this verse that one of my theology profs always referred to when we would ask him tough questions to stump him. Dr. Warren Van Hetlow. <laughs> Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Aren't you thankful that's the God you worship? A God who, who's so vast that you can't possibly understand his outer edges? A God who is so mysterious that for all of eternity we'll continue to learn more and more about him? That's our God. Let's get to know him. But let's get to know him in a way that is marked with great humility. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you have given us the ability to come into your presence because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask that uh, you would give us great grace and patience and wisdom as we wrestle with many questions we have. I mean, there's, there's, there's no doubt, Lord, that we, we have barely even scratched surface with these different questions, but, but God, I pray that in some way that this would serve our church well. I pray for the one with us this morning who might not be a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask you would help them to see their sin in a very real way and understand that because of their rebellion and choice to not believe in you, that they're separated from you. And that no amount of good deeds or right living will ever bridge the gap. So instead, Lord, I pray that you would help them to understand and see and know that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Even now, Lord, as we sing our last song, I pray that some would call out to him for the first time and find glorious grace offered to them. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.